0: Hello and welcome to a brand new Arseblog, Arsecast, right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. I'm sitting here this morning with a uh, cup of coffee uh, out of my Mark uh, Marin WTF podcast cat mug. And it's uh, the morning after a 1-0 win over Carabag in the Europa League. Normally on a podcast like this we would spend some time talking about the game, talking about the performance, but... It was such a... I'm not going to say irrelevant, because it wasn't irrelevant. There were some moments and some things in that game which were important. But overall, it's not one of those games that really needs or merits a huge amount of analysis uh, on a podcast. We'd already won the group in the Europa League. We knew we were going to top the group and qualify for the knockout stages. So it was about the small stories, the little stories, the things that make up the fabric of a football club and a football team. And there were a few of those last night, not least of which was the return to action for Lauren Koscielny after six months out. You remember that he suffered that terrible Achilles injury in the uh, Europa League semifinal against Atletico Madrid back in May. And I remember at the time, I remember thinking as I saw him on the ground that Diego Costa had done something to him off the ball. Costa, being the big evil brute that he is, must have smashed him in the head, and we were looking the other way. It turns out that the injury was so bad, Costa was actually concerned for another human being. That's how bad this injury was. He'd been playing for a long time with a chronic Achilles issue, and unfortunately that night... Uh, It all went wrong His Achilles tendon ruptured, and here we are, six months down the line, and he stepped out on the pitch for the first time, and you could see from the time he lined up in the tunnel ahead of the game how much it meant to him. You know, you think when a player gets to 33, they've kind of been there, done that, seen it all, but... Just the sheer happiness on his face was brilliant in the tunnel during the game. After the game, when he was taken off, he just looked so happy to be out on the pitch again. And, of course, it's very timely because we do have something of a central defensive crisis going into the game on Sunday uh, against Southampton. No Mustafi, no Sokratis, no Rob Holding, of course, who's out for the rest of the season. So to see Koscielny back and to come through the game seemingly with no ill effects. We have to wait and see, but he didn't look like he was feeling anything or feeling any pain. So uh, that's a really... A really positive part of that game, and also the performances from some of our young players. Ainsley Maitland-Niles back in the team did well at left back and was moved further forward when we made some changes in the second half and played really well on the right hand side of the front three. So that was good to see. Joe Willock, uh, Eddie and Kedia getting a run out, and of course there was an exciting home debut for 17-year-old Bukayo Saka, who is thought very, very highly of at academy level. He really is an exciting prospect. And we saw flashes of that, didn't we, in the game against Karabag. He had some lovely skills, worked really hard, and late on had a chance to score a goal, which the keeper saved with his face, unfortunately. Just a little bit more composure in a situation like that, but you can't blame a 17-year-old for for snatching at it a little bit, you know, given the uh, the occasion and the opportunity, and he probably had his name in lights before he taken the shot. So there's probably a lesson to be learned there for him, but a really exciting debut. Unai Emery, very, very happy with him, saying that he played with big personality and he's got qualities that can help the team. Whether that means we're going to see more of him in the weeks and months ahead, it remains to be seen. But there is definitely a gap in this squad right now for uh, a player who can give us something from the bench. And I know it's a lot to put on his uh, young shoulders and maybe we're getting carried away with ourselves. But it is what we do, isn't it? When we see a young player at Arsenal come in and play well, we immediately think this guy's the best player I've ever seen unquestionably. Uh, So we'll we'll wait and see. But a very promising debut and a very encouraging debut for another academy graduate who looks like they could make the grade. It's a very interesting time at the Arsenal Academy. There are some very, very good young players coming through. Unai Emery seems like the kind of manager who's prepared to give young players a chance too. I know it's easier in the Carabao Cup and it's easier in the Europa League, particularly when you're playing a, a kind of a dead rubber game. But, you know, this is a guy who threw in 19-year-old Matteo Genduzzi uh, for the first few games of the season. He came from League 2 and he played against Chelsea, he played against Manchester City. So if he sees the quality of the talent is there, he's not afraid to give them a chance. And I think some of these young players will will be knocking on the door of the first team. And that's a positive thing as well because there are spaces and there are places up for grabs in this squad still as Emery shapes it and molds it the way he wants. So we'll, uh, we'll wait and see how that all goes in the weeks ahead. Uh, what else? Mesut Ozil is back. That was good. Uh, He's been out for about a month, so with the festive schedule coming up, it will be good for him to be back and fit and ready and get some minutes under his belt. Uh, You know, He got an assist of sorts as one of those assists where he played the final pass, but Lacazette still had something to do. Lacazette in the team, we assume, for fitness reasons, he's been in and out with a groin problem, so maybe they're just trying to get him back up to speed because there are difficult games coming up between now and the end of the year and maybe early in January as well. So uh, it was good to see him back. That was his eighth goal of the season. Beyond that, there isn't a great deal to say about the, the Carabao game. The Europa League group stage is over. The draw for the knockout rounds will take place on Monday. And we'll find out who we've got then. That is something to uh, to look forward to. Those games kick off again, I think, in February. Uh, the knockout stages of the Europa League. But for now, we can put Europe on the back burner and concentrate more or less on the Premier League. There is a Carabao Cup quarterfinal against Tottenham next week, and the FA Cup uh, starts in January as well. So January could also be hectic if we do come through that game against Tottenham on uh, Wednesday. I presume it's Wednesday night. Should have looked this up, shouldn't I? I'll just do some very quick Googling here and uh, double-check that. Yes, it is Wednesday at 7.45. If we come through that game, a two-legged semi-final at some point in January as well, so that will stretch the squad, but also allow Unai Emery to rotate and maybe give more chances to young players, right? Uh, coming up a bit later on, I am going to be talking to Josh James, uh, who I'm sure many of you will know as somebody who writes things for Arsenal.com, but he is the co-author of a brand new book uh, called Arsenal, The Complete Record, a fantastic compendium, a tome of stats and information, and basically uh, every, every game that Arsenal have ever played is in this book with the lineups, with the players, with the, uh, the goal scorers, loads of stats about managers, attendances our record against other teams. It's a a brilliant book. So I'm going to be talking to Josh about that a bit later on. I'll also give you the winner of the t-shirt competition from last week with thanks to goodhonestpro.com. So stand by for that. But first, a more serious discussion. A number of people were in touch with me this week wondering why we didn't touch on the Raheem Sterling incident in the ArsCast Extra on Monday. And my feeling was basically that it would be Somewhat reductive for two white men to sit and talk about racism uh, directed at a black player, about racism in football. We all know what happened. A Chelsea fan leaned over the advertising hoardings and screamed aggressively at Raheem Sterling, calling him a fucking black cunt which, lest we forget, is exactly what John Terry called Anton Ferdinand a few years back, and he received a a trifling ban and fine for that. So that's indicative of the challenges that uh, football faces in dealing with these kind of things, and maybe the example that that sets and, and how it resonates throughout the game and beyond. But anyway, I thought it would be better to speak to two people who are far more knowledgeable and better informed about this than than I could ever be, which isn't to say I don't understand that racism is bad. Of course, everybody listening to this, I'm sure, understands that on that very basic level, racism is bad. There's no condoning it in any single way, regardless of what anyone puts on their Instagram or how they dress or anything like that. But it requires, I think, the right perspective and the right people to talk about it and I think I've got those people here today. First up, a pleasure as always to welcome back Tayo Papula. Hi, Tayo. Hey, Andrew. How you doing? I'm good, thanks. And from the Arsenal Vision podcast, Clive Palmer. Hi, Clive. Hey, mate. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Clive, can I start with you and just ask you not your reaction to the abuse that was levelled at Raheem Sterling because uh, I'm sure that won't have been a surprise to you. Maybe the how blatant it was in a football ground might just be a little bit of a surprise, but we'll come back to that later on. But, but the statement from Raheem Sterling, which appears to have, if you'll excuse the expression, blown the whole thing wide open because it, it sparked so much more coverage uh, from a different angle than just angry racist guy being racist.
1: Yeah, I think we've all been through these race storms, different ones. Yeah, you mentioned John Terry, the Luis Suarez. There's been there's been a few of them, and they they come along. They normally come along in international breaks when we've got time to discuss them, right? <laughs> and then they, and they disappear as soon as the next game comes up. When the next big game comes up, we stop talking about it. But what Sterling did really beautifully was a, he called people out in a subtle way. He made people look at how they message, how they write things, and he made people think, well, actually, how, how are we influencing how black people are perceived? And and that story, the two stories alongside each other, brought that into stark reality. And the way it was done, it wasn't done about himself. He used examples of other people, two young people just making their way in the game, and how we write about them differently. And that gave no one any wiggle room to hide and we had to look at ourselves collectively. And I, for one, I've been pleasantly surprised by the, the intelligence, the depth of thought. In all of the reaction that I've read, maybe some of the things I don't want to read, I've, I've moved <laughs> past. But all the reaction that I've read. I think has been really different this time compared to the previous convenient fill spaces in newspapers and podcasts and type reactions that we've seen before. So I, I've been, you know, quietly uh, surprised and positive, really.
0: Tayo, from your point of view, has the reaction been the same? Because we saw... I guess a bit of introspection on behalf of certain people in the media. Uh, You know, I was thinking of Gary Neville, uh, the way he spoke on Sky Sports, having, you know, basically admitting, yeah, I I knew there was abuse, but, uh, you know, it's something you kind of push to the back of your mind. There have been other people. Daniel Taylor wrote a really good piece in The Guardian as well about working in the newspaper industry, in the, uh, you know, working as a tabloid journalist and how – that industry needs to address uh, the way that it writes about certain people or certain ethnic groups or whatever it might be. Um, does it feel different to you this time? Um, I think what Clive said there was um,
2: was was brilliantly put. Um, I'd I'd say it doesn't feel. I wouldn't say it feels different this time. I mean, as a you know, as a black football fan, as a black man, then there's so much. Well, there's something that Ryan Harems Sterling said in this statement, which, which again, enjoyed is the wrong word, but bear with me, is that where he says that, like, yeah, he heard it, and he wasn't, and he didn't, he almost didn't want to focus on it. It's almost like that was part of the course, and that was, you know, it was almost like that was the bit that was that he could brush off his shoulder a lot easier because, you know, the I I don't often engage in these kind of conversations out loud because. Got my own views and my own ways of dealing with things and my own experiences that I don't always feel I'm going to benefit anyone else, let alone myself, from talking about too much. But um, obviously, this is um this this is a bit different. So with that in mind, I wouldn't say it feels different this time. I've seen you know that you mentioned you mentioned a load of journalists there before. I think Daniel Harris is someone as well who's always who um. Uh, who's written? Um, who's written on 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 Raheem Sterling before? People like Football Three Six Five have always done it in their kind of media watch and so on. So it's been around before, and it's so. I think it's so obvious. It's so obvious. It's so clear to, you know, to black men who deal with this or black women who deal with this. I should say black people who deal with this on the regular that when I say I'm, I'm not surprised, Andrew, I'm, I'm, I'm heartened by, you mentioned Gary. I thought Gary Neville's kind of introspection was great. I think he was looking at himself and saying, you know, I didn't, I'm asking myself, should I have said or done something earlier? I thought he articulated himself really well. <clears throat> you know, as ever, I think Gary Lineker has kind of made himself, you know, proved himself to be the most likable player who ever played for them. And, um, and, and brought the debate you know used his kind of platform to to, to keep the debate live and I, I i do agree that we are gonna we have to be careful about moving on it's easy for people to move on from this and it's see also uh, it's not so easy for for people who have to live with this all the time and who who this becomes part of the course mm. and Clive talked about the language there And it's so true It's like unless you stop And unless you stop check yourself And we're talking about a race issue here But we've also had a year of You know kind of me too conversations Where people Maybe, maybe there's something To to be examined here And I really do think that If somebody says something's wrong Don't turn around and tell them That they're wrong to feel like that yeah. So in that sense I'm glad that this conversation is coming up. Will much change? No, and that's why. And again, Clive, you said the stuff that you've read, um, and we all know what the kind of fat head, fat headed elephant in the room is as well. <laughs> you, you, you know, and and the only reason why I want to kind of mention him in in, in abstract terms um, is 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 because it's the danger of somebody with such a platform. Yeah. So spectacularly missing the point. But not missing the point because, you know, um everyone's been talking about calling people out. I'm not shy here. Because it appears Morgan's not missing the point. He's deliberately, you know, he's he's strawmanning it to the to, to the nth degree. And 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 I only mention that because it's dangerous. The danger here, the thing that's kind of most disappointing here is because the kind of people Who is that kind of reasoned? That it seems like a reasonable argument, Mm. but it's more pernicious by ignoring the point, by talking over, you know, the likes of Clark Carlisle and Darren Lewis um, on the clips that I've seen of that show. It's that danger. It's putting forward in this kind of bombastic way this alternative point of view, which is refusing to see the point which is the kind of, uh, which then becomes the, you know, it becomes the kind of get out for, you know, small glass, small gla- people who wear small glasses and use the cry laugh emoji and have got, you know, crusaders in their avatars. It gets used by those people yeah. in the wrong way. And that's what I'm most disappointed about here. I thought Raheem Sterling nailed it with his, with his statement. I love that. I love the way he did it. I love the way he brushed his shoulder off Um I'm a little bit disappointed with some of the reaction as I've just mentioned. And that's what kind of stays with me more than ever. If it gets people talking about it like we're doing it now, then 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 that's great.
0: Yeah. I mean I mean that's the thing, you know, to have a discussion about this. It's not part of my reality, whereas it's something that you guys have had to to deal with your, your entire lives. And that's why I think you, you made a great point, Tao, that it is important when somebody says something to you, you need to listen. I mean, you, you even think about this Uh, furore whether it's a thing or not about the fairy tale of New York and this discussion over the word faggot in the song and people are saying well it's just a word, it's part of a character but if enough people are telling you if enough gay people are telling you that this is problematic it behooves us to listen to them in the same way that uh, what Raheem Sterling said. I Just just going back to Sterling and just sort of the, the way that certain things were reported, you mentioned Football 365, and they've done fantastic stuff on Media Watch um, to call out the, the kind of reporting that's been done around him. But there's an amazing example here from Sky Sports where after he got the tattoo, Uh, of the gun, which again was something that Piers Morgan reacted to in in the way that you described, Tyo, And he said in his statement, he said, after I saw my father killed or after my father was killed when I was two, he didn't see it. He said, I made a promise to myself I would never touch a gun in my life. On Sky Sports News, Clive, they reported that and it said, I made a promise to myself that I would never touch a a gun again in my life subconsciously deliberately whatever it is it completely and utterly changes the context of that and it's impossible to look at it outside the prism of the color of his skin it's it's subtle
1: conditioning right yeah And, and this is something that you know most black people have had to live within the environment that's given to them and this is what is um, unique about this situation. Raheem Sterling is a uniquely talented individual. He's the highest paid British footballer in the country. If you ever see a video of him when he was 14 playing for QPR under four, as a, in an under 18 game as a 14 year old when he was about two foot three running, <laughs> running through them like a knife through butter. This is a talent that was coming for many, many years. and Liam Brady, I don't know how you missed him, right? But that's another <laughs> subject, another subject, right? So, so he is unique. He is special. He has circumnavigated a lot of what's been thrown at him, and he's managed to make it to a point where he's a premiership winner, England's number 10, and he's, he's only just starting where he's going to end up. But this all affects... People just like me and tyre really, and um, and one of the things that I do is I I mentor some young athletes, and I help them try to get jobs and and interviews and things like that. And um, and what's really stark for me, these are highly qualified people, and how hard it is for them to get the break that they need. And the people that I worry about who read all these preconceptions and have all these messages are the ones that are providing opportunities for for young black people to better themselves. And if you can't better yourself, that dictates your whole life. So this Raheem Sterling, he will be fine. He will have hard times, but he will be fine he'll have the support around him. But these young guys fresh out of university that are going into these city institutions, for example, to try to get a role, they're not getting that chance. They're not maybe getting a fair chance. And if they do get a chance and they fail... their their second chance opportunity isn't there. That means the standards by which you are judged are completely different. Now, that's what an average black person lives with every single day. That's what I live with every single day. And it doesn't mean I want anyone to cry for me. That's the way I've been brought up. That's the way, that's the country that I live in. Now, when we start to change the perception of people like myself, and I'm very, very lucky, by the way. I've got no problems with work or earnings or family or anything like that. I'm very lucky the people around me. But not everybody is. And it's those people that I would like to see get a great opportunity in life. And if by Raheem Sterling bringing this out... I'm hoping the debate will reach, don't worry about Raheem, he'll be fine. Don't worry about LeBron James, he'll be fine. Worry about the, the average guy, the young kids that are trying to be the part of the next generation, trying to integrate into the British society are not being allowed to fully so feel completely disenfranchised from what's happening around them. And there are enclaves within this country where that is real. It is real. It really is real. And so this debate... I mean, what you're saying there, Ty. I I hear you about some of the idiots in the room, but I actually tried not to listen to them because I've heard that before. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I tried to seek out different people. I don't know if you've heard Jonathan Liu on the independent podcast. You've got to try to listen to it. It It's outstanding how he's responded about the saviour complex of certain people in the media coming out and saying, jump into the front of this cavalry when previously there were opportunities to protect black players and they haven't taken them. Mm. So now, is it fashionable? Is it topical? Was it because it was a Sky game live on TV? Mm. We don't know, but we're talking about it now. And that, to me, is a huge positive. So I prefer to focus on those individual bits of positives to see how people are bringing different Positive messages into the discussion point, rather than the idiots that we've known and al- with their I mean, six million followers that we all know exactly what they think. They're not right, teaching I mean, us part, anything. This is part
2: of my point, Clive, though, because like I don't, you know, I don't, I don't follow. I've got, you know, uh, uh, there is no. It appears it <laughs> it appears on my timeline whenever it does. Yeah, or, I know or what you mean conversation with you and then the conversation, and you know. You talked about it being a thing in uh in international breaks to move on. For somebody like Piers Morgan, for example, another reason why I say so pernicious, because you know, two days later it'll be going on about Little Mix again or something. You know what I mean? It's like it's 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 a it's a role for a contrarian to take a point of view when there's people's lives who are dealing with it and not people like you mentioned, like Raheem Sterling will be fine. I mean I just I just made a programme about this talking to, to talking to various black footballers up and down the country. Um, um who, who and John Barnes um, and he made his point very eloquently on BBC. John Barnes is always a big advocate of this. He said this in my programme. He was like, Well, don't worry about John Barnes. You know, worry about uh, and Brendan Batson said the same. My brother's a mecha- you know, my brother's a mechanic. Worry about him and his mates. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um because it's there every day. And there's and we're talking about we're talking about people in the media or people like yourself or like myself who, you know, are kind of, you know, all right, thanks. You know what I mean? But, you know, I grew up with the same, I grew up with the same stuff um, around and, and navigated my way through it. But as many people, as many people who don't. So that noise that's around it is dangerous because it hardens the views of people of certain people because it comes from, it hardens the view of the average man yeah. or average woman. Um, th- and that kind of, that kind of sort of pernicious, bombastic, deliberately missing the point for whatever reason, whether it's for ratings or followers or anything in between, is distracting, I think, from the conversation that Raheem Sterling on this occasion tried to start, or that Paul Mortimer, um, John Barnes... um, you know, Paul Cannaville or anyone else who's trying to start. We're talking about football, so he might as well stay talking using football references. This point is not this, – this hasn't happened for the first time. I remember when I spoke to John Barnes about, you know, after I was finished fawning. Um, <laughs> another, one, another one we missed, by the way. Let's I mean, not go yeah, out on the yeah, <laughs> You know, after I finished fawning, you know, just just watching – indifference is the wrong word, but, like, when you're so used to this kind of shit every day – Wherever you might, then it's hard to raise. It's hard to raise up and stay, stay angry all the time because it will just ruin your week and ruin your life. You know, so I'm very, very grateful that high profile people have turned the, like you said, Clive, who've turned a light on themselves and asked the question. It's a shame, but it's always the way that you do need. And we're, we're talking about race here. For a race thing, you the conversation needs to be picked up. By by white people for it not to be um, put into the box of dun dun dun. Clive's already smiling. Chip on the shoulder, you Mm -hmm. know what I mean, Mm -hmm. right? Because we heard that one before. If somebody else raises, if 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 a prominent black person says something, a lot of the time it can get dismissed as. You know, playing the. I've actually ordered for Christmas, actually. I've actually ordered a couple of playing cards with the race card on the back. So the next <laughs> time someone says something to me, um, <laughs> then, they're get, then they're getting served with one of those. You know, I mean, very, what the very. You know, what the fuck is the race card? What are you talking about? Yeah. You know, the feminine card, the feminism card, or whatever card you want to play. This isn't card. This is somebody trying to say that life has been going on like this, fine. But just because life has been going on with these conversations
1: and these types of points of view, doesn't mean the
2: right,
1: mm. mean yeah. right I think um, this is where Raheem's been really good because right? he's he's been brave enough to bring this to our attention now he can afford to say well actually I don't need to fit in with anybody because you have to fit in with me because I'm super talented the average person on the street will have to think twice about his reaction to think about like things like this because he Sometimes he has to conform to the things around him and to the people around him to make sure he can do the right things by himself and or his family. And I think that's that sort of invisible pressure that we that people have to live with is something that really doesn't get spoken about very much. Right. So and I think that's not really saying I'm a victim. That's just saying these are the circumstances by which I live. These are the circumstances by which I have to try to progress. And and I'm, I'm really keen to see those decision makers, those people that control jobs, universities, that control opportunities, they're the ones I'm hoping are looking at themselves today and thinking, okay, I've got diversity courses going on at work, but am I really, really invested? Am I really, really invested? And and I hope that's they're the people I hope the messaging is actually getting through to, because the more the greater the average man perception is improved, the better it will be for everybody. And I think that's it is changing, it is progressing, and but the more this is this is spoken about I feel the better.
0: We're, we're talking, sorry to cut across your tie. I just want to play something, and I'm sure you guys have both seen this, and this is from John Barnes speaking to the BBC, I think it was BBC Breakfast uh, this yeah. week, and we're talking about things in a football context, but this is, uh, this is what he had to say. Before we are members of any football fraternity, we're members of society, so we're doing it the wrong way around. You can't look at football, because for football, for 90 minutes on a Saturday, or obviously football is played at different times now, you can't just say, because for the 90 minutes we don't see it anymore, means it doesn't exist in society. It is prevalent in society. As you go going to the inner cities and see how disenfranchised and how lack of opportunities are there for members of ethnic minorities. So why should football be any different?
2: I was literally about to mention John Barnes. I was mm, going to mention his. Um, I was going to mention um, his Guardian article on the same thing. And I mentioned it again. As I said, I met him recently, and people like him recently, um, black footballers. I mean, and um, it, you're right, Clive. It has got better. Of course, it's got better because it's now. Because it's now a taboo thing to do that It's got yeah. better Because we're having a discussion about how shocking it was to catch somebody live on TV This happened all the time This happened all the time In the 80s mm-hmm. And in the late seventies, and perhaps later than that, I don't know. Um, <clears throat> and it wasn't. And the point is, it wasn't headline news. When John Barnes backheeled that banana in the Merseyside derby, it was a big story. You mentioned Sky and so on. Now, Andrew, it was a big story because it happened in the Merseyside derby, and the best player in the country, arguably at the time, had done it. Yeah. And Barnes himself says it didn't. He he says he doesn't remember doing it. And he says, but, you know, <laughs> I have bananas chucked to me when I play for Watford eight years earlier, uh, six years earlier. Sorry. So so why, you know, it becomes a headline thing because because we move towards it being a taboo thing. And that's great that that happened. But, you know, we're, we're talking about um, players having to confront or conform. Do you fit in because you don't have a structure around you and when you have to take this stuff and, and use it as banter? quote-unquote, banter, or do you stand up for yourself? There are footballers before like uh, Bob Hazel and George Berry who confronted, you know, our very own um, superstar and hero, um, Ian Wright, Mm. says, um, I know he says, you know, he he wasn't brought up in football where he was just supposed to grow up and accept it. He says, I think in one programme, he says, I was still fighting people in play, I was still fighting people in the car park if they called me that kind of thing. Why am I going to take it when I go on the pitch? So that's an attitude, that's an attitude shift. And that's because society has shifted and because play has kind of shifted. But we see that it still happens. The other thing John Barnes says in his article is that just because there isn't racist stuff being shouted in the stands, it doesn't mean there aren't any racists in the stands. They just know yeah. that they have to keep that to themselves now.
0: Should we know? should we Clive then be worried that In recent weeks, we've seen a banana skin thrown at Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang by a Tottenham fan who claims he wasn't racist. He just happened to throw a banana skin at a black footballer. And we've got this guy at Chelsea who feels emboldened to lean over, knowing more than likely that there is a camera on him because of... Well, there's a camera on everything these days. And he feels emboldened enough in this day and age, in 2018 to scream fucking black cunt at Raheem Sterling and think that perhaps there won't be any consequences or repercussions for, the, for this. I think that is worrying. I know things have got better. And I know there's amazing work being done, you know, by Kick It Out, by uh, Rainbow Laces, all these things which promote the kind of inclusivity and diversity which should be standard in football and everywhere in society. We know it's not. And that's why these things exist. And that's why they're so important. But to see that creeping back in, I think it's a worry. It is a worry. And I've been going football since
1: 1977. Right, and so let me tell you something. The only thing black in the stadium then was the referee shirt, right, <laughs> apart from myself now and so and when and then when black players first came into the game in in mass it was it was very difficult, I and mean, people talk about the players. well, trust me, the few black fans that are in that crowd it was It was really tough really tough, It's really embarrassing and it was really threatening and Arsenal was one of the very few places where you could go where that did not occur in my experiences and hence why I'm an Arsenal fan to this day because it's always been an inclusive club I don't see that those days coming back again because I just don't think people would accept it. And plus, there are many different people within the ground now. I mean, when I first started going football, there was never any Asian people in the ground now. And you go to Arsenal today and there's so many people from different backgrounds. So I don't see that coming back. But I think this is linked to what's happening in world politics, I'm afraid. Mm. World politics is very divisive. What's happening in the US, what's happening in the UK, what's people looking to go back to the good old days. What are the good old days? The good old days when they went to Sainsbury's and when they spoke to somebody, he would come back to them in English. That's what it means for a lot of people. And a lot of areas today, that's not the case, right? So people are, are voting against that. They're voting against that and they want to be divided. So now we're voting for things that we don't want in our lives rather than think about how we can progress in our lives. And so this is all a byproduct of the divisive politics, the divisive rhetoric that's been thrown at people over the last couple of years, particularly in the world. And now people are feeling more emboldened to do these things. I don't link it to football per se. Football is just a byproduct of how people are feeling walking around every single day. And this is a place where it manifests. Now, football has an opportunity, being the global soap opera that it is, to say, well, actually within football, we can create a new set of values where this is not acceptable. Not just saying to people, you can't do this and this is the punishment, but actually try to get a different value system amongst supporters. Because whether that whether that supporter said black or, or mank, it doesn't really matter. What really I found distasteful was the hatred on his face. The hatred on his face for that individual, regardless of what he said. And I'm not sure football actually needs that level of hatred. I mean, I, I am not a Tottenham fan, but you will not see me with that face any Tottenham player. I'll tell you that for nothing. And there's no need. I'd much rather focus on, on my own team. I think there's an opportunity for football to look at itself and set an example, because this truly is a game that has a massive platform. And then outside of that, then just take a, take a deep breath and say, well, actually, what is happening here? And then just look at the BBC News tonight, what's actually happening? And just look at all the Trump stuff coming through on your Twitter feed. What's happening is what's happening. We know what's happening. So we are becoming more divided as a society. So why wouldn't it manifest itself in football? Mm. It'll be a surprise if it didn't.
2: It's another mark in the sand. I think is the um, is the most positive thing um, for me in terms of you know when Mark Walters had bananas thrown at him when he was in.
1: Um, Rangers. When he's playing for Rangers. And I was there, Tyo. I was on the ground. I, I, wow. uh, Rangers is my second team, and I wow. was there with Rangers. I was there when Rangers played wow. Bruges, and Daniel Amakachi got things thrown yeah, at him, yeah. and I was in the Rangers' end. So I have done a lot of travelling around Europe and watching different teams, and trust me, I know exactly what happened to Mark Walker in that stage. Right.
2: Well, that, um, you know, in my research recently, um, you know, that was, on, that was headline news on BBC Breakfast now um so and it was around and then they got john barnes in to talk about it because john because it had happened to john barnes um the season before so i guess what i mean is that if you need these kind of stakes these milestones as it were where um we need to talk about this and maybe years to come if an attitude can change if one less if people can think about the the imagery and the language. Let's go back to that in the newspapers because that formed. You mentioned what goes on in the world. That kind of attitude does get formed in the papers. It's too easy to have your "quote unquote" bling bling footballer kind of image. That's very, you know, that that that's layer upon layer, um, and it becomes a problem. And I mean, again, you know, you've got two got two black guys on, so we're having that conversation. But recently. Um, you know, there's been a rise again in some of the abuse that, um Brighton fans. Uh, or that gets hurled at Brighton um, because of their, quote, you know, because they've got the so-called links with homosexuality. You know, every single year you have the, the rainbow laces Ferrari kind of thing. And so if football can do anything, I don't think, I don't know much about whether football can be this kind of change, uh, change for good. I don't know how cynical I am about it. Maybe I'm too cynical about that. But by keep on by having these kind of things by repetition, repetition, then these attitudes do change slowly. You know, we, as you said, Clive, you've grown up an Arsenal fan because Arsenal fans have always been quite inclusive. You know, I grew up in I grew up in southwest London. And when, and and by the way, I'm not making this into a Chelsea thing or a Spurs thing or a Millwall thing or anything like that. But I grew up in South, I grew up in Battersea, and you, you know, you walked to school with CFC NF on the wall, in 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 1981. <laughs> um, so those kind of so it didn't let's just say it didn't feel like the club for me, you know. <laughs> so but but, 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 I only mention that because it is it's incrementally these attitudes change by providing these kind of positive images, and you know when the day comes, if the day comes, hopefully the day comes in the Premier League, where. Um where you have your where you have your gay footballer and it doesn't matter um and so and we have lots of gay footballers, and nobody will leave and anyway and anyone even become news in the same way that in society it's not become it's become not news to a degree anyway. so you want that kind of incremental change, and that's the quote unquote good that football can do. If anything, because it is so much in the spotlight, and maybe, maybe this is the start of it. With or for maybe this is the start of it again. Mm. We've had many false starts. Maybe this is the start of it again for this generation in this digital era, where the message gets spread further.
0: There is a responsibility, is there not? If we talk about the the, the role that football can play, and and hopefully as a a, a positive way to make change or to change people's minds about certain things but there is a responsibility with the people who talk about the game and who cover the game and who follow the game and who write about the game and the media and the way that they cover it so for example in this day and age you know it's sometimes it's hard to get your head around the fact that there's this well we should hear both sides we need to hear both sides of the story well hang on a second i didn't think that in 2018 we would need to hear The other side when the other side is white supremacy. Right. I I just could not have envisaged that 20 years ago, you know, not being blind to what goes on in the world, but just the idea that we should debate the other side. There is no other side of racism, you know, so it's about making sure that that message is put across. But it's got to be put across in a way that perhaps isn't preachy. You know, people don't respond particularly well to being told things they probably know deep down are true. It's a difficult thing to try and get your head around, but there has to be a level of education, Clive. Is that the right word in how we talk about these things?
1: And this is why this this will not be resolved really, really quickly. And um, Because it is going to take education. It's going to take... More and more people being around more and more people who are educated. It's going to take more and more black people to be educated, to be around more and more white people to make sure they see another perception of people. Mm. Right. So, and I think again, you know what is the perception of, of a of a black person it, it varies right it varies based on your upbringing your environment and it varies on on the messaging that you've been given and that's why I think what Raheem did is he focused on the message and he made certain people that control the messaging look at themselves mm-hmm. and that for me is I think that's been unique I, I don't know I don't know if I've missed it in the past but not to this level because now you know Raheem Sterling has got a big following Right, he has got a big following of people, so his message can reach a lot of people. We know that newspapers are are struggling per se with the with the written word, and and so and getting their word out there. So they're looking for an online um, group. So, but Raheem Sterling's got a big online group, right? LeBron James has got a big online group, and so now there's a platform for them to get these messages across. And this is why I think it has been unique this time, because now we're seeing people. Look at themselves, and I wonder will it will it change it 's going to take years of education, but the, the almost the quickest way to to roam. Is to look at the messaging that's coming from those media outlets. It's not all of their fault, but they have a platform to reach many, many people and start to be careful about the words they use for not just black people, but for different minority groups, including women and LBG people. And and if this is this is something that's going to um, hopefully trigger a turn in the page, but I, I do worry. I, I can almost hear Tayo saying, you're too positive, mate." <laughs> And, um, and then, and then when when Liverpool Man United comes on on Sky on Sunday, I wonder, I wonder what I'll be thinking about.
2: No, but you I mean, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I do know what you mean, and 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 I think you're right to be positive. And I'm, you know, maybe I'm being slightly more nihilistic, but you know, I just want, you know, Jose Mourinho is a wanker. He's not a Portuguese wanker. He's just a wanker. Yeah. You know, and and <laughs> and that's and that's that's so. Clear to me, his wankiness is not part of his Iberian nature or anything like that. It's because of you know a playground, you know the, the playground attitude that I've got towards football. Yeah. I don't understand, that. and 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 that is why I also think that the messaging, the people doing the messaging, are very intelligent people. You know, are very intelligent people um, a lot of the time. Um, we the journalists and broadcasters and so forth. And you've seen that in many of the directions. That's why it is so, that's why I think my most depressing thing, um, and I wish I had a better filter than you, uh, as you, Clive. And that is why I'm disappointed about the, um, not just, not, some people are staying silent on it. Some people are deliberately sending people in the wrong direction. And I find that more dangerous because that just hardens people's views. So the reason why I'm slightly kind of um, more nihilistic than you probably is because, I've seen this movie before. You've seen this movie before. Uh And I want, and so you end up kind of, you know, hopefully someone will hear this and think, well, maybe someone somewhere has got a point next, next time I'll think about what, what I say. I've certainly changed my language on many subjects over the years. When somebody told me it was, when somebody tells me it's offensive, then you've got to listen because it would be easier to turn around and say, well, that's just how it is. And you all could be offended by anything these days, <laughs> you know, which is another classic of the genre. But you know what? Just sometimes just stop and listen to what someone's saying. Maybe somebody, maybe, you know, maybe the girl at work doesn't want to be called love again. You don't mean anything by yeah. me. She doesn't. Then just don't call it. If she, if she says that, don't turn around to her and say, what's wrong with you, love? You should do, do you get used to it. I've always said that. I'm not sexist. Do you know what I mean? Let's just listen. Listen. And, and, you know, football's a platform to do that. And you're right that what Raheem has done, Raheem Sterling has done with that messaging is make somebody somewhere have that conversation and think twice. Next time they're going to write something. Next time they're going to write some garbage clickbait article about him buying a sink you know what I mean, or whatever. But then also maybe that will change something, like you said early on in the piece, Clyde, and what um, what John Barnes has said, is that maybe that will change a certain attitude to the person next
1: door, not just the person on the TV, the person next door, because this is an everyday thing. I mean, listen to John Barnes, I mean, just just think for a moment, right, that guy had one job in management and he's no longer working in the game of football. Just imagine what a guy of that intelligence could do in a game of football today. I, and I, I find it criminal the way he was treated when he went into management. And um, regardless of bit of what people felt of his abilities on that occasion, he was never given a chance to learn by his experience and to be still in the game. And to hear him talk, I, I think we do ourselves a disservice by, by keeping people outside of the game on that. And imagine what he could do. If you think that one third of the players in the Premiership are are black, I believe. And if you look at all the England under-17s, under-18s, under-19s, under-20s, under-21s, look at those team pictures. Look at the Arthur Academy pictures. Just take a look at them and see what's coming around the corner. And we've got people like John Biles on Breakfast TV. He should be. He should be doing something else than that. He, should, he really should be because what's he's, what's he's what's way- what's going- Sorry sorry to cut across you by
2: the way. You just got me... In. That's the good thing, though, Clive, that you say you look at the Arsenal youth team, you look at the England team like that. That's um, that's the kind of incremental change that is... I mean, if someone told you that on the terraces in 1977... I wouldn't believe it. <laughs> you would have, you you know, <laughs> you would have been amazed to see that. And you've been through, like... Um, I wish I'd spoken to you earlier. Um, you know, you the changes that you see and I, by, the, by the time I've kind of turned up in the game, there are black people in the stands next to me and no one's spitting on down my back. Do you know what I mean? So to go and do that, um, maybe that incremental change will speed up because like most things do in a, you know, in a, in a, in a kind of digital era. Um, and maybe we will see more black managers and black coaches because that's the final frontier or the
1: next frontier anyway. It is. And I do a little bit of coaching myself. And, and I, when I go around non-league grounds, I, I can see the changes at a lower level. And then you look at what Sol Campbell's doing right now. And I, I, I fear he's been set up for a, for a fall. Maybe that's a cynic in me. But I want him to succeed just because of the people that are going to follow behind him. Right? And the cameras are on him at the moment. And I think he has to succeed because I don't think he's going to get two or three chances to fail. And that's the environment that I'd like to see change, where we people can succeed, fail, get equal opportunities. That's all. That's all. And the messaging reduces those opportunities for me, and that's the key message that I've taken from the last week.
0: Um, gentlemen, uh, look, I, I've been sitting here in silence listening to both of you, and it goes back to what Tayo said a few minutes ago, uh, just about listening. It's been um, educational for me, Uh, even from, I I guess, a position that I would consider relatively enlightened. But uh, it's been a pleasure to have you both on the show. If there's anything else you'd just like to make a final point on, please feel free. Um, (laughs) I mean, I've got one thing that you just raised there, actually.
2: You said enlightened as well. Imagine now, look how woke has been turned into a kind of sneering pejorative of somebody who actually does want to listen. Mm. Oh, you're getting woke. I mean, what what the fuck is that sorry so to listen to to question something is quote-unquote virtue signaling or trying to be woke Mm. nah son that's not right that's the only thing I wanted to add because he just made me think of it. There, that's another thing that hardens the views of people who don't yeah, want to listen. It, it is,
0: it's pernicious. Absolutely, it is. It's that. It's that. Uh, that thing where you are immediately labelled one thing or another thing. It goes back to the fucking out or AKB thing, which was just absolute absurd nonsense, unthinking, unintelligent bullshit. The minute you label somebody as one thing or another thing, you find no middle ground whatsoever because you're on your perch over here, and the other guys on his perch over there, and in between you is just a fucking moat of sharks and 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 horror, you know. So you've got to be, you've got to be uh, able to listen and be open to ideas, even if it challenges what you think you know or what you've always known. Uh, throughout your life so look uh, gents it's been a fantastic discussion clive thanks very much indeed uh, really appreciate the time pleasure, mate. thanks for asking me on tayo as always a pleasure to have you on thanks angie
2: thanks for um, thanks for doing this as well I really appreciate it
0: not an easy discussion but a necessary discussion i think and i was glad to have it with tayo who you can follow on twitter at dj tayo and Clive Palmer, who is at Clive P A F C. And Clive is also a regular on the Arsenal Vision podcast, which I know many of you listen to as well.
3: A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend.
0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number Stores or sleepnumber.com. Right, if you're looking for an Arsenal book for Christmas, you could do a lot worse than the new publication from my next guest on the podcast, uh, along with Mark Andrews and Andy Kelly. Josh James is the author of Arsenal, the Complete Record. Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Not at all. This is quite the publication. Basically, in, in very short terms, it's every game, every season, every player, every manager from Arsenal's history, plus a lot of other stats and information in there, too. And as someone who's put together a few books in my time, I'm looking at this in kind of awe but also terror <laughs> how long did yeah. this take to put together
3: well um a lifetime really mm. <laughs> pretty much um from when i started working at arsenal i've been collating stats and um just growing and growing and, and the same for the other two guys especially um andy who has got a, a huge database of um players and games and lineup so it's something that has sort of grown literally over over years and years and mm. then when we decided to put it together as a book, um, that was about a year ago now, um, probably just over. Um, So actually to collate it in book form took about a year, I'd say.
0: Right. And in terms of the, the information that's in there, you know, we're talking about uh, official lineups of games going back into the 1800s, uh, the early 1900s. Uh, that, that kind of information isn't always, A, easy to find and B, verify. Has that, was that a challenge that you had to come across? Obviously, you say Andy had a big database himself and stuff that he put together. But, but trying to make sure that the information is accurate must have been a bit of a challenge as well.
3: Yeah so with Andy and, and Mark the, the co-authors they specialize in in researching and digging out um all sorts of source material from you know 19th century Arsenal and back to the very foundation and that's what they've been doing for years and years it was it was a hobby and now they've written several books about it um so they're the guys really that that dig into the history um side of it from you know pre pre moving to north london in uh uh, from foundation in 1886 onwards. So they're the guys really that spend their, their time in, um or spend their lives really in the yeah. newspaper libraries and going through as much as they can find. And they never stop. They just, they keep looking for verifiable second sources and um to find all these stories. And they've unearthed hundreds of these great stories um from more than a hundred years ago. Um So that's really their, their speciality. And where I came in, uh, I've been working at the club now for uh, 17 years. So I've been across collating the stats, editing the handbook every year. And just year on year, you refine your stats and you refine your history and you, and you get to a place where you're pretty comfortable with how reliable it is. But as I say, it's, it's never ending. You go on and you, and you hope to find more stuff and unearth more yeah, I mean, players' I, names and, sure. and so on. So it's, it's, yeah, it's an ongoing job, really.
0: I remember at a, we did a live podcast last year and somebody came along and had a scrapbook that i guess their grandfather had kept from the 1930s cutouts and bits and pieces that he put in from the newspapers at that time and it was a treasure trove of information that had been sitting in an attic somewhere so all these things can be you know discovered in time and uh, you know can add to the add to the archives i guess
3: Yeah, absolutely, and that's first-hand material because football clubs have produced literature, matchday programmes and and handbooks for years and years and it's just a case of of getting your hands on them and and knowing um, what to believe and what not to believe and steering clear of Wikipedia and stuff like that because (laughs) it's the the primary source material which is really valuable and and obviously the the club holds a lot of that, but over the years stuff gets lost and then reappears and it's... um, historians such as uh, andy and mark who can really know where to look for it
0: sure what what kind of archives or what kind of attention uh, did the club pay over the years to to the history and to preserving information and archiving historical information was that a thing uh, or was it something that you know wasn't paid a great deal of attention to until such point as somebody said hey this is important we've got to we've got to keep a, a treasure trove of information here for uh, you know for for the future or for not just for your benefit when you're putting something like this together but do the club maintain a kind of archive of historical information as well
3: well yes yeah, so no, it does it's sort of depending on um whoever was at the club at the time and, and how important they felt it uh, to be so we've we've had historians throughout the years and There's a guy called Ian Cook who's who's been around the club for years and um, he's a historian who collates and um, gathers artifacts and whatever he can get his hands on, really, through auctions and and wherever they are. Um, But in a formal collection or an archive or a library, it hasn't really existed because it's not something that, um, you know, it's not a priority at the club, is it? It's a nice to have and it's almost your your casual um, hobbyists who collect this stuff and who have an interest in, in it who are who are really uh, valuable for that side of it we we have like these big huge dusty books that are um, somewhere in the hybrid house um, storage um, called ledgers where all the, the lineups are written down but obviously in the last 20 years or so a lot of it's gone digital and it's all online so that sort of side of it has, has died out it's there's no single collection. Yeah, it's what I'm trying to say. I suppose it's all bits and pieces everywhere, which I guess is half the fun as well. You, you don't know what you're going to unearth.
0: Yeah, fair enough. And and in the process of making this book, and and Mark and Andy uh, wrote another book recently along with Tim Stillman called Royal Arsenal, which we covered on on the show as well. Are they always finding new angles to stories or things that we thought were true in the past that aren't necessarily true, or perhaps have been over the years? Exaggerated for effect. Uh, I'm thinking oh, of the.
3: <laughs> I'm thinking yeah, of the, the
0: the promotion in 1919, where, you know, if you listen to some people, the story is that you know it was all um, smoke and mirrors and surreptitious bribery and all kinds of stuff going on, but it doesn't appear to have been quite as nefarious as that.
3: No, uh, when you when they uh, dig into the into the history and the details, as, yeah, as you say, back in 1919, when Arsenal were. Uh, not promoted, but I suppose elected into the top flight into Division One, as it was then, um, after finishing sixth the year before. Um, w- and people were saying it's at the expense of Spurs, which is a great story. And um, and it was at the expense of Spurs. But when you actually look at the um, the quotes and, and Spurs said they, they took the decision as as sportsmen, there wasn't as much controversy at the time. Um, and, and given the context of it, it wasn't a promotion, it was an election and they decided to restructure the league and teams were invited to to apply for it. And Nottingham Forest were one of the teams who applied and they finished 18th in Division 2, so they had <laughs> uh, less say to to it than Arsenal. And there was lots of different factors behind the decision and, that, and it is when you read it in the context that these the, sort of things make more sense. Um, but yeah, they dig out lots of previously uh, unknown stories. And one of them was going back to 1904 when um, Phil Kelso, the manager at the time, um, had taken over from Harry Bradshaw. Harry Bradshaw had resigned the year before. He was Harry Bradshaw was basically a um, 19th century or early 20th century Herbert Chapman, very successful, um, getting Arsenal, developing each season. He resigned halfway through the season, said he would stay on, and, um, and it was previously thought he'd stayed on until the end of the season, but he left just before Arsenal clinched promotion, which seems a bit odd now. If you're thinking that mm. Arsenal were in the running for a trophy and the manager decided to leave just before it is clinched, so that just goes to show the level of um, investigation that they go through to find out these these stories and to to verify them. And that was previously um, unearthed by anyone.
0: There are always things, I suppose, when you look into uh, the history of a football club that will surprise you. Uh, was there anything that you came across that you really had no idea about? When, uh, I was looking through the back of the, uh, the book where you have all the players that have ever played for the club, the, the nationalities of them. And I remember talking to uh, a friend who told me about uh, the fact that Arsenal had an Icelandic player in the 1940s. Um, yes, yeah. Albert Goodmanson, and it was like, ha- hang on a minute, that's a big bit exotic, isn't it, for the 1940s? But lo and behold, it's true. He's in there. He's in the record. Is, is there anything else that you came across that you didn't previously know, or was a surprise or a shock?
3: Well, there's plenty. There's that, the, I mean, that <laughs> was the, the pleasure of um, of proofing it, which I did uh, several times in the end. But to go through and read these stories, and I think it's mainly the, the personalities and the players, as you say, you, there's there's someone you read about it and you think, well, how did he end up playing football at Arsenal? And then mm. there's a great story behind lots of these lots of these guys. A, there was a striker called um Tim Coleman, or his name is, was John Coleman, but he, anyone he didn't know the name of or forgotten the name of, he he called Tim and that was just how he became referred to he he then <laughs> became called Tim Coleman himself. There was a guy called Joe Murphy he always played in a in a flat cap or a wig. Um so he became known as the Judge Joe jo- Judge Murphy. And there's a lo- loads of these um profiles of players throughout the book and they're just great <laughs> characters who just seems a world away from what we see today obviously the, the professional football and and these world famous players mm. well, these were these were just regular guys um who each had their own story as well
0: i, I like the idea of a footballer playing in a flat cap or a wig I could, yeah. so, I could sort of imagine Yang perhaps getting on board with, with yeah, that kind so of I thing. Think,
3: um, yeah, Puma can bring out a range of flat caps, and I'm sure we'll be Ad, for it. Adidas,
0: them. Adidas. Not Sorry, probably, Adidas uh, next year. Uh, next yeah, next yeah. year, of course. Um, one of the things that's always fascinated me about um, football on a very basic level is statistics. And I know that's something you're really interested in, but I'm sure when you were a kid as well, you had that little handbook that you got. It could have been the Rothmans football handbook. Yeah. Where it listed every game uh, or every club, and it gave basic statistics for each, like the highest attendance, the uh, the biggest win, the biggest defeat. Uh, am I right in remembering this that Arsenal's biggest win and biggest defeat were against Loughborough?
3: Loughborough Town, yeah, yeah. yes, but yeah, and again, the stories behind those games because it was um, the day of the record defeat. We actually had to play two game yeah, to honour two fixtures in the same day. And so we've sent a reserve, a, basically a reserve team to play one of the games. Um, so there are stories behind those records as well. And uh, yeah, the, the the records and the stats are endless. And I know it's, it's not for everyone and you, you're bordering in real nerdish territory a lot of the time. So what we've decided to do is to break it up and you have a history book and a stats book in one and, and it sort of interweaves throughout it. But yeah, if you're, if you're into the, the statistics and the lineups and the records and the lists, there's plenty there and you can you can sort of get lost in it all yeah. um mm-hmm. and it is quite um yeah quite amazing the the level of detail that you can go to it, it, because nowadays we have all the Optus stats and the, you know everything's measured but even back back in the day to have the lineups for every single game that a club has played um it is quite impressive when you see it all all laid out in one go because it's it's just so striking how many games you know every game that we we live through at the moment it seems like a. It's life and death, isn't it? And, yeah. and it's a, a massive occasion. And it's, when you realize they've been doing this for more than 100 years, it's, <laughs> it's quite awe-inspiring, really. Yeah,
0: yeah. It will continue after we're gone. Absolutely. I, I think Absolutely. one of the things that's striking when you look through the book and you go, you know, you pick a, pick a random season. I'm, I, I'm at 1924-25 here where the manager was Leslie Knighton and the captain was Alf Baker. And I'm looking through all the lineups here, and it's essentially <laughs> the same guys in every game. Yeah. throughout the entire season. And, you know, we can talk as much as we like about how football these days is more physically demanding. You know, players have got to be... Uh, they've got to run more. They've got to sprint more. But back then, they still had to run. They had to run on boggy pitches. They had to contend with opponents who would be quite happy to tackle them at knee-high or above. And they had to do it without, let's say, the... The facilities that the players these days have in terms of uh, training, in terms of rehab, in terms of physio, in terms of medical, there was no such thing as as high performance or conditioning or anything like that. It was like get yourself out on the pitch. Here's a here's an orange and maybe an injection. <laughs> yeah. It's it's amazing to see it, isn't it?
3: Yeah, it's, I mean, it is a different. It's almost a different sport, isn't it? It's so far removed, mm. and there's a, a a great story in one of the seasons. I think it's 1906, early early um, 20th century, and Arsenal played Man City in a league game, um, and the game was so hot; it was 52 degrees in the sun that five City players couldn't finish the game. They had six players on the pitch, and Arsenal took pity on them and only won 4-1 in the end. But there's there's lots of stories like that when you think well, that just simply wouldn't happen nowadays, and games played in all sorts of conditions. Mm referees getting punched by fans coming on the pitch um so it it is a i mean it's a it's a throwback but it just seems when you go season by season it's a gradual change you don't notice it but when you look back 100 years in in one chunk you think how how on earth Mm. is this the same sport same club same team it it, it's um the gradual change you don't notice it but when you look back it's obviously a completely different world they were playing
0: in sure is um as somebody who worked or has worked at the club for uh, I don't know how many years now, how many years?
3: Seventeen years. Seventeen
0: now. years. So th- throughout uh, most of the Arsene Wenger era, you know, your knowledge of that particular era and his reign as manager is uh, undoubtedly second to none in terms of statistics and everything else. But how does Wenger's reign match up in terms of uh, other managers uh, from the past, the successful ones and maybe not so successful?
3: well it's just the sheer um, duration which is the most striking thing we've got a list of all the managers um, at the back of the book and their and their overall records and and, and he just dwarfs them all with, in in terms of games played games won players used um trophies just you name it he's at the top of it and it's it's you know a, an outlier you could say it's sort of distortingly bigger than everyone else and that's um so the book comes out up to the end of last season, which is obviously the end of Arsene Wenger's reign. And when you put it into context, because we've all lived through that time and we just we knew the Invincible season was, a, was a, a remarkable season and a one-off and a historic season and winning all the FA Cups. But when you see it in comparison to the rest of the club, which let's not forget has been successful more often than not throughout history and has had several successful periods, when you see it compared to all the other managers in the other periods it's incredible really the the longevity of it um and to, and you, seeing it in the raw numbers tells you that obviously everyone all the fans who who's lived through it will know their own memories and have their own uh opinions of the time but when you see the numbers it it is puts rams it home i suppose
0: yeah i mean a hugely successful era frustrating era in many ways uh as well in the second half of it but uh, yeah. some of well, yeah ama- i mean
3: yeah absolutely and yeah. and and you, you you build your own expectations, and when um, uh, Bertie Mee won won the double for Arsenal in in seventy one, and was you know this was the most successful mm-hmm. season Arsenal had ever had, and within three or four years they're, they're struggling against relegation, and 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 that's how you, you know you, things go from from good to bad all the time, um, under, and it can be under the same manager. But when you think Arsenal were were struggling were, were cool to be struggling when they were finishing fifth or sixth. Uh, yet, you know, Bertie Mee was holding on to his job when Arsenal finishing in the bottom half. So it's all yeah. relative and uh, and obviously expectations change. And looking at that, the the Wenger period as a whole, it's I mean just a hugely successful twenty two mm. years.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's it. You set standards and people come to expect uh, you to live up to those standards. Consistency in football, as everybody knows, is is the most difficult thing, I guess. Uh, the, the book is full of amazing little stats and asides in, in every season. For example, going back to 2003-2004, uh, the 9-8 win penalty shootout win over Rotherham in the League Cup was the only shootout ever staged at Highbury, which is an amazing thing for a stadium that was home yeah. to Arsenal for so many years.
3: Yeah, and we've not had one at Emirates yet, so it's the only home penalty shootout we've ever had. Um, which, wow, yeah, does seem does seem um, to be a bit of a anomaly. But um,
0: do you know if that is an anomaly? Into, I mean, your knowledge of other clubs and their stats is is probably I don't care about them to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
3: okay. um, I don't know. I, it's uh, it, I mean, penalty shootouts. Uh, when was the first one we had? It was probably the, the first cup, uh, the Cup um, Cup final. So it's only really. Mm um in the past 20 30 years that they've that they've been um around but right. uh, yeah it does it does seem very strange i mean we could have one there's no extra time now, isn't it? in the in the Carabao Cup, so maybe Ooh. we could have one on Wednesday
0: night. Well, maybe so. Now that we've talked about it, it's definitely going to happen.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, listen, best of luck with the book. It's absolutely fantastic. It's called Arsenal, the complete record, and it is absolutely the complete record of uh, the history and the statistical history of, of Arsenal Football Club. It loads of great stuff in there as well. Josh, uh, all the best with it, and thanks very much. No, thanks for having me. Thanks. The book is Arsenal, the complete record. It's published by De Coubertin. De Coubertin? I don't know how you pronounce that. I should have figured that out. But anyway, that's who publishes it. But go to your local independent bookstore and say you would like a copy of Arsenal, the complete record by Josh James, Andy Kelly, and Mark Andrews. It is an amazing, an amazing book. Um, There's so much in here and so many little snippets and things that you thought you knew, but you didn't know. And uh, just even looking over the stats, uh, even if you're not a particularly stats-friendly person, it's fantastic. There's just so much in here I can't even begin to tell you. Uh, So if you're looking for a book for yourself uh, this Christmas or for the Arsenal fan in your life, you could do a lot worse than check out Arsenal, the complete record. So look, that's just about it for this particular show. Thank you for being here as always. We've got a game against Southampton on Sunday. It's hard to preview because it's only hours since we played Carabag. Uh, Obviously, there'll be some heavy rotation and we'll wait and see what kind of team selection Unai Emery gets together, particularly uh, when it comes to the centre of his defence. If you are looking for more Arsenal stuff to consume... Remember, we've got loads of it on our Patreon side. If you become an Arsblog member on Patreon, you get instant access to a ton of podcasts, including a brand new Pastcast Extra, in which James and I podcast the 3-2 win over Chelsea at Stamford Bridge in 1999, the Canu hat-trick, as if it had just happened. That follows up on some of the other ones, but there's loads of other history podcasts in there, episodes of My Arse. There's a recent one with Dara O'Brien. There's loads of articles, long reads. It costs just a fiver a month plus VAT if you're interested. In the EU, if you're not in the EU, you don't have to pay VAT. That's all it is, and you get instant access to all that content. To sign up and to help support everything that we do here on our blog, Arse blog News, and the free podcast that we do, uh, check it out. It's Patreon.com/slash forward Arseblog. Patreon.com/slash forward Arseblog. James and I will be here with an Arsecast extra on Monday. We'll be looking back at the Southampton game and ahead to the Carabao Cup semi-final, quarter-final rather, against Tottenham. Until then, take it easy, have yourselves a great weekend. Catch you on the next one. Cheers. Bye-bye. This Christmas, give the gift of a lifetime to the Spurs fan in your life. Full unedited footage of the incredible 1-1 win over Barcelona in the Champions League. The comeback of all comebacks. Result of all results. Out now on DVD, Blu-ray and Betamax. Plus the director's cut with exclusive audio commentary from Eric Dyer.